Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself. Broaden your mind. Open your heart and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. Welcome to another edition of 1111 Talk Radio. It is a joy to be with you here today. Everything feels good and we only see things the way that we want to see things. But we have to be realistic as well. We have to be willing to dive into the places that rise up in front of us that sometimes don't always feel good. Or we have these situations in the world, in our lives, in our own bodies that can rise up that many times want to be resisted, but that's the opposite of what we should do. It's time now where we really embrace everything as it is, where we understand the bigger role that we play in this world, both on an individual level and on a collective level, and how our own work and our own depths are calling us to a place of service toward ourselves and towards the world. I love the book that I have been reading and we are sharing this week on 1111 Talk Radio, it's called Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in an Authoritarian World. And within the book, she talks, Carolyn Baker talks about indigenous rites of passage and how in other cultures, they always prepared their young for these rites of passage that would come. And so they always expected it, they accepted it, they knew they were coming and they looked forward to them, looked forward to the challenge, looked forward to rising above, looked forward to what was ever required to move through those rites of passage. In our Western world, we haven't been given that sort of perspective or training, or we haven't looked at some of the things that we encounter in life in that way. But what if we did? What if we looked at every single experience that we encountered whether it's a health issue or a relationship issue or a job loss or uh, a fractured hand, in my case, like happened last week, as a rite of passage, an opportunity to grow and to uncover parts of ourselves and things that were going to rise up that we were unaware of. I'm looking forward to diving more deeply into so much more of that conversation and so many other points that she brings about in her brilliant book, Undaunted, living fiercely into climate meltdown in an authoritarian world. Carolyn Baker was a psychotherapist in private practice for 17 years and a professor of psychology and history for 10. She's the author of 15 books. She was on recently with Andrew Harvey, where we uh, discussed their latest book called Radical Regeneration, which is fantastic. So definitely look up that archive that was a couple of weeks ago. She has co-authored four books with Andrew Harvey, and she has a website called carolynbaker.net where she publishes a subscription-based daily news digest. And it's a collection of news stories and inspiration that focuses on the global crisis and options for navigating disruptive times. So she's very clear and direct in what she shares, but then she also shares inspiration so that individuals can face whatever is in our world, but then also see that there is light that is present as well. 
I want to welcome you back, Carolyn, to 1111 Talk Radio. I look forward to diving into this very beautiful book. I think a very critical book for this time and a manual for individuals that are truly wanting to open to themselves and also be of service to the world in a greater way. Well, thank you for welcoming me back. It's wonderful to be back, Simran. I I just really love talking with you, and I can't wait to jump in as well. I want to start first with the title, the word undaunted, and have a real understanding of what this word means, not only in the general sense, but in the context of the conversation that we are going to have today. What is it that you're asking individuals to embrace with their mind, with their heart, and with their actions in the word undaunted? Well, I'm glad you're starting with that definition because uh, undaunted does not mean heroic. It does not mean that that we never fail, that we do everything perfectly. Um, the subtitle is important, living fiercely into climate meltdown or living fiercely into anything else that we're challenged with. And fiercely just means I'm doing this passionately as an assignment. I may not like this assignment, but it's been given to me and I have a choice as to what to do with it. And so I'm going to live as fiercely and as intentionally as I can into whatever is in front of me. That's really what Undaunted is all about. Well, and I love that word fiercely. You use that throughout the book. And there's there's an energy and almost, I feel, uh, a radical love that comes through that yes. word, at least when I've used that word in the past in different contexts. Yes. It's, it's this radical power of love and power that comes through us to approach something. So I really love how you utilize that in the exercises of the book and and throughout some of the discussions. And this is very much uh, focused around climate change, which I found really interesting. I, I wrote a book called Conversations with the Universe, and I tell people to look at the world as themselves, as speaking to them. And I've often said that the climate change is really just reflecting our inner climate, that all of the emotions and upheaval that's inside is coming up on outs on the outside to to show us that as well. When you're talking about facing the climate change and the upheaval, talk a little bit more about what you're pointing people to, both on the inner and the outer. Sure. Well, I'm really glad you actually started the show today with talking about about rite of passage. Um, you know, Stephen Jenkinson, who is one of my heroes, makes this wonderful statement that, you know, when we're experiencing any kind of suffering, including planetary suffering, um, that we need to make a choice. You know, we can either accept it as uh, look at it as an affliction or as an assignment. And so the purpose of really this book is to try to help people understand that what's in front of us now is an assignment, that we are being asked as human beings, as inhabitants of this planet, to to um, choose, to consciously choose 
this rite of passage that we are going through. And I can say more about rites of passage in a moment, but that's really the the thrust of the book is how do we embrace what we're experiencing as an assignment? And then what are the tools that we need to take up that assignment and work it? That's what this book is about. In the book, you use some terms, climate anxiety, climate grief, eco-anxiety. And when I think about what I feel in the world, because I'm very empathic, I can feel this kind of rumbling beneath the surface of people and our environments that is anxious or is kind of uh, erratic, as if people can't settle down quite completely, that they are not fully comfortable in their bodies or where they sit on earth. And so when you're talking about this invitation, this heartfelt plea to commit to the inner work and external earth and human stewardship that the climate chaos and authoritarian encroachment on our humanity is demanding of us, and that's your words from the book, shifting this look into a rite of passage, how will that support not eliminating, but at least allowing us to understand and uh, perhaps equilibrate this climate anxiety and grief and different experiences that are sitting within our physiology and our emotional bodies? Well, I think that the only way that we can, um, you know, create this equilibrium that you're talking about is by committing to doing the inner work and the outer work you know, to look at this as, okay, this is a rite of passage. And I want to take a moment to just explain what that was for Indigenous people. You know, it was like for Indigenous people, it was about you're prepared from childhood to go through this rite of passage around the age of puberty. You have lots of elders that are talking to you about it and comforting you and and supporting you and and making it not a terrifying thing, but something that you'll be honored to go through and they're going to support you in it. And then you get there, you go out into the wilderness with your elders and you're faced with some kind of ordeal. And it's the, it's the most perplexing ordeal that you've ever had to face. And it requires you to reach down inside yourself and find those holy resources that you didn't even know you had and bring those forth to get you through the ordeal. And then after that's all over, you back to the village and there's a feast and dancing and people love you and support you and honor you for what you've been through. Now, we don't have that kind of rite of passage in our culture at all, but it's that mentality that we need to bring to this crisis of, okay, I wasn't prepared for this ordeal. No one was, but here I am. And what preparations otherwise have I brought with me? What resources internally and what resources around me can I bring in to help me move through this? And moving through it is not about becoming victorious or anything like that. It's not a hero's journey. It's about, I'm going through this as an assignment, and what can this teach me, and what can I give to others and to the earth as I go through this? 
not knowing the outcome, not knowing the outcome. I want to add that. (laughs) Not knowing the outcome. I totally get what you're talking about. I had my own experience where I did that, where I literally said, I'm going to sit here and face the grief. I'm going to face the darkness. I'm going to face every feeling and every emotion. Yeah. But that's something that is so foreign in our culture. Yes. It is something that people resist and don't want to go there. And when you talk about how the elders supported the younger generations in those indigenous cultures, even so many of our own so-called aging and elders, they didn't face their own trauma or they're traumatized from things that, that they didn't delve into. Yes. So what do we do with that, especially for the young people that are listening to the show or individuals in in the mid-years that are looking at how their families were or the elders that they're aware of are? How do they then, with a very conscientious and conscious step, move into the direction of creating this type of consciousness of rite of passage for themselves and those people around them. Right. Well, in most cases, we cannot go back and talk to our elders to get to get those kinds of tools. We certainly should talk with our elders and honor them and respect them and have compassion uh, for them on what they've experienced. But generally, our tools and our support are going to come from our peers um, and also, you know, from the younger generation. And, and so we need lots of support as we, as we commit to going consciously through this ordeal. Um, and, and that's one reason I wrote the book is to help people understand the importance of that support, to give them tools for practices that they can do both individually and in groups. Uh, and, and there are so many resources now. You know, it's like we have this terrible crisis that has never happened to to human beings on this earth in the way that it's happening now. But we also have more tools than we have ever had in human history. So that's the good news as we go through accepting this assignment. Now, you spoke about the inner work and the outer work. And later in the book, you also talk about not just being and not just doing, but that this is a time for being and doing. Yes. Can you build a a little bit of a construct around those points? Sure. Um, The inner work is extremely important, and this is kind of the heart of how Andrew describes sacred activism, the marriage of activism or service and spirituality. And so we need to do this inner work, and Undaunted is a wonderful manual for beginning that process, but also to be active in the world in some way, in whatever ways our heart call us. And, and, and those callings may have uh, nothing, uh, you know, apparently or seemingly to do with climate change, but it's something that perhaps breaks our heart and certainly calls our heart to service in the world, to compassion, to making, even if it's just our little patch of ground, a better place. And also to do that without knowing the outcome, 
uh, without being terribly invested in that outcome, just to respond to it, that whatever that calling is, because it's the right thing to do and because we cannot not respond. You share quite a few beautiful quotes and uh, other teachers in the book, and you wrote activist and spiritual teacher Richard Rohr, the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation, uh, said that we need both compassionate action and contemplative practice for the spiritual journey. Without action, our spirituality becomes lifeless and bears no authentic fruit. Without contemplation, all of our doing comes from ego, even if it looks selfless and it can cause more harm than good. It doesn't matter which comes first. Action may lead you to contemplation and contemplation may lead you to action. And in my witnessing of the world, we have a couple of different issues. We either have the, the, the group of people that is more apathetic and indifferent because they're not facing their own emotions, their own humanity, their own grief and different things that are rising up. And then there's another side, which is the group that wants to live just in the light love and light place of saying we can we can just consciousize this away and there's no action involved if we just sit and and do what we're doing over here in this realm of spirituality but that compassionate action requires that deep practice of uncovering what's within us and i if i look at the two groups that i've mentioned it's usually in both cases they're not willing to dive deep enough to touch the well of grief, to touch the place of heartbreak that you speak of. What occurs when we let ourselves go there to that depth, Carolyn? Well, first of all, I want to say that we need support for that. Um, I do not uh, support anyone trying to open themselves to the realities of climate change or any other crisis and trying trying to do that alone. We need each other. Um, and so that's the first thing. Um, and, and then to, to realize that, um, and this is the reason a lot of people can't even look at the situation beyond, you know, oh, well, we had a hurricane. Well, life goes on. Um, you know, again, Stephen Jenkinson is absolutely spot on in what he says about this process. He says, inattention to the world's ecological state is well advised because attention to it mitigates against your happiness, your contentment, and your sense of well-being. Having a conscience now is a grief-soaked proposition. Whatever spiritual awakening may have meant in past times and places, if you awaken in our time, you awaken with a sob. And so that's why we need each other and we need to be doing the inner work and the outer work. Um, but this time and this notion of living in the light all the time, 24-7, that's over. That is absolutely over. It was never real, and it's even less real in this moment. There is a fracture that, that takes place between hope and hopelessness, between certainty and uncertainty, between knowing and unknowing. And that's that's the place that we must fill. And, and I think it's filling it with our own presence, with our own 
understanding. And you talk about it in the book that emotions are allies, not enemies. And that's a big shift for a lot of people because I think so often in in early self-help or early uh, psychotherapy, it's more about pushing away um, emotions or, or, or delving into them and then get rid of, getting rid of them. Some of that has changed now, mm-hmm. but still emotions are kind of looked upon as I'm only really supposed to have certain ones, not these other ones. Well, the planet is now telling us with all of the natural disasters and, and extreme weather that we're experiencing and the, the subtle shifts, um, that are happening that are not even dramatic and extreme, you know, the, the amount of pollution that we're taking in plastics and such, you know, the whole planet is telling us that, um, you know, we've got to feel. You know, it's like you you can't be numb anymore. You can't just prance through life and think, well, you know, if I say the right affirmations and say the right prayers, everything will be okay. The planet itself is speaking to us. Um, some people would would actually say the planet is is putting us into a hospice situation because mm. the planet is in a hospice situation. And so what are we going to do with that? You know, hospice, it's very interesting. Hospice is not necessarily, um, okay, you're going to go there and die and that's over and, you know, just pull a blanket over your head and get ready. Um, I'm thinking most recently of Jimmy Carter and how he's been for months and months in hospice. I doubt very much if he's just been sitting there twiddling his thumbs waiting to die. Knowing the kind of man he is, he's probably been doing all kinds of things to reach out to people and to enrich his life even as it is ending. And so there's a sense in which we are in a hospice situation as a planet, as a species. And so what are we going to do with that? Um, it's an ending, but in so many ways, it's another kind of beginning. And what that looks like for everyone is individual, and I wouldn't pretend to forecast that. But now it's time to pay attention to these God-given feelings. You know, they're whispers of the divine. So let's embrace them, and let's do that with lots of loving support in our lives. We don't have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. That was beautifully spoken. You write in the book, Befriending Emotions is not the end game in living fiercely into our predicament but it is the most sane and sensible beginning. Without them, we are reluctant to mind the meaning in our impasse. And that brought me to this place of making meaning. You know, in one hand, it means everything. Everything means everything. And on the other hand, none of it means anything. But when we make meaning of the situations we find ourselves in, that allows us then to grow our compassion, to reach out in service, to do something else. Talk a little bit about meaning in adversity, as well as where faith lies in all of this conversation. Sure. So when we go back again to that rite of passage that indigenous children went through, the whole purpose of that was to 
cause this young person, as I said before, to reach down inside themselves and find meaning. This would, this would have been an experience that would prepare them for all future rites of passages in their lives, whether large or small, um, to, to look at that experience as, okay, what does this mean? What is the meaning in this for me? And that is what is so lacking in our culture is an emphasis on what really matters. And that's why we, you know, we have we are such a materialistic culture. It's like if I have lots of stuff and make lots of money, I'm going to be happy. You know, and and what's what this is really about, this crisis is not about being happy. It certainly is about finding joy, but the way we find joy is through making meaning in our lives. Um, you know, it's not the promotion that we get at work. It's not the new car, the new house, the new relationship. You know, those are moments of happiness, but happiness is transitory. Even the word happiness starts with a prefix hap, which is related to the word happenstance. So it's circumstantial. It comes and goes. Joy is where it's at. And we're all about looking for happiness, happiness, happiness. And we disregard the joy that we're really searching. Meaning brings us to that place of joy. In fact, you know, Viktor Frankl wrote about his experiences in Auschwitz and that there were moments when he found tremendous meaning amid all that suffering. And what that did was take him to a place of joy. I have found in working with folks that when people begin to tap into their climate grief or any kind of grief, it really deepens their joy because grief and joy travel together. You know, the poet Mary Oliver, we shake with grief, we shake with joy. What a time these two have housed as they are in the same body. One leads to the other. And so meaning is all about joy and it's all about getting beyond this quest for happiness to what's really real. Happiness can only rest upon the surface, but joy rests deeply within your core. It is the foundation of who you are and rests at the center of each cell. But to reach that, you have to be willing to do the inner work and then allow that to transition into outer work. When we hold the tension of opposites, we do not become paralyzed and debilitated by our fear, nor does it drive us to shame others for their insistence on living in denial. Indeed, instead, we feel more vulnerable, yet that very vulnerability offers us an opportunity to share our fear with trusted allies in our lives. If we have those allies, we possess an inestimable gift. If we do not have such allies, it is our responsibility to find them. This is from Carolyn Baker's book, Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in, author in an Authoritarian World. Carolyn offers life coaching and spiritual counseling for people who want help with navigating the unprecedented challenges of our time. You can find out more by going to carolynbaker.net or email her at carolyn at carolynbaker.net. 
Once again, the book is Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in an un, in an authoritarian world. I can't say that word for some reason this right. morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to mention when you order her book, which is filled with beautiful practices and a really beautiful, sacred, realistic look at where we are in these times and how to navigate that through deepening into yourself and your experiences I invite you to pick up my new trilogy on self-realization as well, Living the Seven Blessings of Human Experience, Being the Seven Illusions that Derail Personal Power, Purpose, and Peace, and Knowing the Seven Human Expressions of Grace. It will allow you uh, an oracle-type experience that is by your bedside while you read all the other books and do all the other practices to just open something each day and allow it to marinate within you. We'll be right back with more of Carolyn Baker and this very rich and timely conversation. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more? More joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships? More empowered community, greater fulfillment, and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides, and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Contrary to popular opinion, compassionate people are not bleeding hearts or lily livered liberals. 
Practicing compassion requires courage on many levels because it invariably incites pushback from oneself, from the external world, and even from those to whom one expresses compassion. However, practicing compassion is not a popularity contest. We practice compassion because it is the right thing to do, because we cannot practice it, and because in the end, we taste the sweet nectar of interconnectedness and claim our place within Indra's net. This is from Carolyn Baker's book, Undaunted. She is the author of 15 books and most definitely a wise elder when it comes to these topics. She's one of those rare voices that is willing to rise up amidst a crowd to point us in the directions that we need to look. So I invite you to explore all of her work by going to carolynbaker.net. Carolyn, let's talk a little bit about shadow work in regard to compassion. Sure. It's a, a necessary place to go. It is a part that we must embrace because it is, like you said before, that hidden part that is erupting through our earth, through our climate. But in beginning that shadow work, we so often meet those parts of ourselves that are the reason that we stay asleep and unconscious. So how would you suggest uh, individuals who have resisted their shadow work or unfamiliar with shadow work begin that process? Wonderful question. Um, First of all, just to acknowledge that we have a shadow, that we all have parts of us that we sent away early on and still send away you know it's inevitable as we grow up um you know we we quickly discover that there are parts of us that are not acceptable to our families to uh you know our culture and so we begin to send those parts away and they don't go away they just stay in the shadows and uh, grow larger and larger And what often happens is that around, you know, we go through maybe the first half of life, but around midlife, those parts of the shadow that we've sent away begin to bite us, you know, and sometimes they erupt in our lives in ways that blow up our lives. It certainly happened to me around the age of 40, and that compelled me to start doing deep inner work. Um, But we don't have to wait to be bitten in the behind. (laughs) We can actually begin that work. um, And it's, it's daunting work. But we need a lot of support as we as we go through it. Journaling is a place to begin. Um, and and really asking ourselves, you know, what what is in my shadow? What what have I had to send away in my life in order to be acceptable? And how might that be affecting me right now? And then just as we look at that on the microcosmic level of our own psyche, to look at that in the world and how that plays out in the macrocosm. Um, I wrote a book on this in 2015 called Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. So it's it's both inward and outward, but we start with inward because that's really what we can do the most about. And and it's, it's challenging work. Um, we come up against a lot of shame. That's why we need support and self-compassion and self-forgiveness as we go through that process. And what's the good news about it is that not only do we find some dark characteristics within ourselves that, you know, we prefer not to see, 
but there's tremendous light there because much of what we had to send away early on was filled with potential and creativity and love. And so as as we embrace the shadow and begin to pull back some of these things that we sent away, you know, we begin to find some very beautiful parts of ourselves, which is why Carl Jung called it the bright shadow, the golden shadow, um, which which really completes who we are, all of who we are. And in, in going through this process of the shadow, fear is going to rise up. You know, when we're, we're facing parts of ourselves that we don't know or have feelings and sensations and thoughts that come out of nowhere, we think that fear can rise. So what in what would you suggest individuals do at the moment that the fear rises to be able to stay in devotion to that shadow work sure. and uh, deep dive that they're doing? Well, certainly, you know, Journaling can be very, very helpful, and uh, any spiritual practices that we have, um, meditation, um, art, and creativity, there are many, many ways that we can help contain this within ourselves, but also to get external support, maybe with a therapist, maybe with coaching, um, maybe with, uh, you know, friends that we trust, um, maybe start, you know, uh, a small group of people who want to begin exploring their shadow and, you know, be able to support each other to so that we have the courage to walk through some of that stuff. And remembering again that what you're going to discover in shadow work is not all dark. Much of it is light and beautiful. I loved what you shared about former President Jimmy Carter and the topic of beginnings and endings, because I think when we allow ourselves to involute and contemplate and dive into the shadow and explore all of the worlds within us that exist, invariably we create endings in our life. We, and those endings are good because we oftentimes close out chapters or things in our lives that are not serving us or people around us. And then that leads to new beginnings. Can you say a little more about the beginnings and endings that particularly now seem to be taking place more than ever individually uh, in, in our different society and structural areas, as well as what's happening on the planet and how we can have this understanding of it is all good as it also all crumbles? Well, you know, it's very hard sometimes to really see that it's all good uh, because in so many ways it's not all good. Um, and and we're dealing with the heartbreak of so many endings, um, of ecosystems ending and species ending and our own lives ending as as you know, pollution-related diseases cut our lives short. And, you know, the cancer rate that we see around us, that's just phenomenal. And, you know, myself, I speak from experience as a two-time breast cancer survivor. Um, so so those endings are around us everywhere. Um, and yes, we can say, well, you know, new beginnings come with that. And in order to really 
feel that in our bones and our bodies, we're going to need to do some grieving. And we're going to need to allow the feelings about those endings to touch us um, and, and to really mourn the losses. Uh, again, I want to emphasize that this has to be done with support of others. And I want to just really emphasize that grieving, conscious grieving, which is a skill, actually, that we need to learn how to do in this culture, but that grieving can take us and open the door for us to tremendous joy and meaning and purpose. And that's what so many people miss when they just say, well, that's sad, that's scary, I'm not going to think about that or feel that. Um, but certainly, we need to think and feel about it with support. This is not work that we can do on our own. Again, you have some beautiful quotes within the book. Francis Weller says, yes. bringing grief and death out of the shadows is our spiritual responsibility, our sacred duty. And Stephen Jenkinson, grief is not a feeling. It is a capacity. It is not something that disables you. We are not on the receiving end of grief. We are on the practicing end of grief. Grief is the midwife of your capacity to be immensely grateful for being born. Mm. Powerful words. Yes. Yes. You write that ranting is a denial of our grief. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I believe that it is. Um, and sometimes we need to rant. But also uh, to, to realize that that's not the end point. Below that ranting, there is tremendous sorrow. And to let ourselves feel into that, and of course, uh, to do that with loving support of others. And then you talk about climate grief, that we're afraid it will stir up all of the other forms of grief, right. overwhelming us so that we deny or distract ourselves with rage or blame. And so this intertwining thread of climate change it really is connected to so many of our most deep and subtle emotions. Talk a little bit about climate grief. Well, we're all feeling it. This is the thing. You know, a lot of people think, well, if I don't think about this, if I just go on my merry way and I just tune this out, um, and especially people who are in denial that, you know, climate change and climate chaos is even happening, um, what they do in that process is they miss an opportunity. Yes, it's sad, but here is an opportunity for us once again to find deep meaning and purpose within ourselves and to find incredible connection and community with other humans and with other species. And so, you know, when we push away the sorrow, maybe it's through denial or maybe it's through anger and arrogance. Like, well, you know, I'm awake to this and you're not, so I'm not going to have anything to do with you because I'm so aware. Um, either one of those deprives us of this gift of, of grieving that brings us closer to ourselves and closer to each other and closer to the natural world. Finding and feeling my own humanity has been a lifelong quest for me. It was the 
driver for me to engage in my own inner work and really face things head on so that I could feel. I was raised as a child, uh, told that if I cried, God would make me cry. And so I was told I was not allowed to cry. And I was not able to cry because of that. I didn't get, my body would not even respond to crying. It was not until around 40 for myself as well, where something happened where I started crying. And then uh, what really happened was around 45. And at that point, it was as if the faucet would not turn off. But I willingly allowed the faucet to continue it was pretty much Niagara Falls for quite a few years. Mm. Indigenous cultures are skilled in grieving, and they can't relate to that statement, I'm afraid I'll cry. Right. And a lot of individuals have that sense of either, if I start crying, I'll never stop, so I need to hold it down and keep it together. Or they are allowing it to seep out just enough, drip just enough, and then tighten the faucet back up. I always see now that the crying is such a sacred act. They are sacred tears. And you write about a woman that is in the story that she's crying and she speaks about joy in the same sentence. And I totally understand what she's talking about from a very integrated physiological place now. Talk a little bit about how grief and joy can coexist. Well, they do absolutely travel together. And I, I've done a lot of grief workshops in the past where we've, you know, come together for weekends and really allowed ourselves to experience grief about a lot of things. And, um, you know, invariably, people will tell me that they've somehow connected with their joy not necessarily their happiness but their joy and and they finally they feel like somehow the tears have washed away the dross and the the mud that has 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 not allowed them to really experience the fullness of joy and I can't explain how they travel together. It's just that they do. And you won't know this until you experience it. Um, but I'm sure we've all had moments of, you know, joy and tears together. I remember the first time I was a little kid, the first time I experienced tears of joy, my mother and I had moved to another place for my health and we were separated from my dad. And I remember when he came to visit us from the first, for the first time. And, and I was like six years old and I didn't know what I was really feeling. It's like, I'm so happy to see my dad, but I'm crying. Like, how can this be? You know, and of course, as I grew into adulthood, I, <laughs> I, I certainly understood how that could be. But as a little kid, it was like really strange. And in the same way, that's all in us, in all of us, you know, that capacity to feel both at the same time and to feel that connection of one with the other. There's a really beautiful passage within your book where you say, grief offers an invitation to become its apprentice. It asks you to sign up to be its student. Doing so does not consign you to a life of sorrow or depression. In fact, in becoming an apprentice of sorrow, you are likely to experience, again paradoxically, more aliveness and more joy than are possible in a state of denial or numbness or rage 
regarding climate chaos. You also go on to say that the estrangement from embodied experience of our intimate connection with all of life then takes place if we're unwilling to feel. And that estrangement from our feeling and our intimate connection then translates to our earth. But we are earth, aren't we, Carolyn? I mean, if you think about it, we are that very earth that we're not willing to connect intimately to. And that's why we're, that's why we're, that's why we are so aware unconsciously, even if we say, I don't want to look at climate change, I don't want to think about it. Our bodies are aware because our bodies are the earth. So we have to be feeling, you know, we're, we're feeling as much on an unconscious level as that polar bear out there on an ice floe trying to keep its baby alive is feeling the grief and the loss. You have a section in the book where you write, the crisis asks a question. To each of us, our global predicament poses a question. Who do you choose to be as the ship sinks, as the forest burns, as the glaciers melt, as sea levels rise, and as millions of species become extinct? Is cogito ergo sum still enough for you, or do you long to declare, I feel, I dream, I love, I dance, therefore I am? Talk a little bit more about that passage. Yeah, um... (laughs) You know, it's like um, we've got this heritage in our Western culture from our our friend, the philosopher Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. And lately, you know, I've been turning this around a lot. And I've been saying, I am, therefore I think. You know, that consciousness comes from this deep well within us of who we truly are. Um, and and that we are absolutely um, everything and everyone. I, I wonder if you would read the beginning of that passage again, just a couple of sentences, Simran, because I kind of lost what you were saying there. Who do you choose to be as the ship yes. sinks, yes. as the forest burns? Yes. Yes. So the, the two most important questions that I want to leave us all with and that I ask all the time, And I invite everybody to be asking themselves every day, in this crisis, who do I want to be? And what did I come here to do? This is all about who we want to be and and what we came here to do and how to serve at this time of really planetary hospice. And to bring these questions to our attention every single day day, maybe many times a day, as we navigate what we're experiencing now. There's a powerful section in the book where you talk about home, and you bring in the words nomadic, and you bring in the words refugees. And as long as we are not connected to our inner earth, as long as we're not connected to our outer earth, we are those nomads, and I'll even say refugees that are trying to find home and we can't treat our home this way and be at home within ourselves no and that seems like a real inner conflict and outer conflict right now that that is taking us to this place of 
meltdown unless we truly face it. Talk a little bit about finding a sense of home on the inner and the outer, even amidst the crisis that we're having. Well, I think it's extremely important that we all have a sense of inner home, um, that we have this place within us that we can come back to. Um, you know, when we're in the middle of a hurricane or in the middle of uh, a natural or extreme event weather-wise, um, that if everything's taken away, our house burns, um, the flood wipes us out, that we can re there's something within us that we can return to. And the way, you know, our spiritual practice is to build that constantly, to be creating that within ourselves. And this book, Undaunted, is a wonderful way to construct and reconstruct that inner home. And then we need, you know, a, a, emotional home around us if we don't have a dwelling place we need this emotional structure around us of support and connection with other people and with other aspects of nature with these three things the inner home and the connection with the outer world um, we are going to be more connected and more undaunted as we face what we're facing now and what is certainly going to intensify. You are and have been prepared moment by moment. It only requires your own excavation. Our planetary rite of passage holds many possibilities. It has the potential to make us more resilient as individuals, and it also has the potential to uniquely inform us about how to live more compassionately and more skillfully in order to deeply adapt and help people heal, help heal the planet. It reveals the fullness of our humanity and the possibilities for creating healthier ecosystems, healthier communities, and wiser and more compassionate individuals. This is from Carolyn Baker's book, Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown, in an authoritarian world. I invite you to find out more about her by going to carolynbaker.net. Look up a lot of her other books too. They're all beautiful, each and every single one of them. You can uh, connect with her in regard to life coaching and spiritual counseling if you're wanting help navigating the unprecedented challenges of our time. Thank you, Carolyn, for being on 1111 Talk Radio. Check out my own self-realization series and my new books by going to imsimran.com. Until next week, I am Simran, in love, of love, with love and as love. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simran next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey. 